Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon. The subject of this episode of the podcast is the international tax proposals approved on September 15th by the House Ways and Means Committee as part of its consideration of recommendations for budget reconciliation legislation known as the Build Back Better Act. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by two of my colleagues here at KPMG, Jennifer Gray and Danielle Rolfus. Jennifer is a director in the Federal Tax Legislative and Regulatory Service Group, also known as FLURS, in KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice. Danielle is a partner and co-head of the International Tax Group of the WNT Practice here at KPMG. Jennifer, welcome, and Danielle, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Gary. It's great to be back, Gary. As anticipated, the House bill includes a number of changes to the current U.S. international tax system. We could spend multiple episodes discussing these changes and barely scratch the surface. But first, the highlights. The top corporate rate is proposed to be increased from 21% to 26.5. The guilty rate would be increased from 10.5 to 16.5625. And the FIDI rate would be increased from 13.125 to 20.7. Other big changes, as we'll discuss in more detail on this podcast, includes going to a country-by-country system for computing guilty and allowable foreign tax credits. Also, there are several important changes to the beat, some bads, such as an increase to the rate and including items that go into COGS as potentially base erosion payments, some goods, such as no longer disallowing the benefit of foreign tax credits, as well as exempting items subject to U.S. tax and items subject to a sufficiently high-level foreign tax. But more on all that later. I want to start this podcast on process. Where are we and where are we going? We're recording this episode of the podcast right after the House Budget Committee completed its markup of the Build Back Better Act, which is the reconciliation bill that includes tax legislative proposals recently approved by the House Ways and Means Committee. We spent a significant amount of time on this podcast recently talking about tax legislation and proposals, and it seems that we're another step closer to possibly seeing this legislation actually enacted. Jennifer, could you help us understand where we are in the process in terms of a path to enactment? Sure, Gary. So the Democrats are in the process of using a budget process called reconciliation, which allows them to pass the bill through the Senate with no Republican support. And folks, I'm sure listening to this will be familiar with that process as it was also used to pass the TCJA. So you know, that's a two-step process. The first step is passing a budget that allows you to do this reconciliation bill to include taxes. That was completed in August by both the House and the Senate, and it's set forward allowing them to do a spending bill with spending as large as $3.5 trillion, and about half of that can be deficit financed, according to uh, the budget outlines. So that part is finished. Now they're on the second part, which is actually writing and passing that big bill. Various committees in the House had parts of that, including the Ways and Means Committee, 
They all wrote their legislation earlier in September, including the tax provisions coming out of the Ways and Means Committee that you just referenced. And so now it has moved to the Budget Committee because the Budget Committee, because it's a reconciliation bill, has to staple all the parts together from the various committees. And they do not make substantive changes. They did that on Saturday. So now basically the bill is still in the Budget Committee. And the next step will be to go to the Rules Committee in the House and then go to the House floor. There's been a lot of focus upon a bipartisan infrastructure bill in the news recently. How is that bill and the Build Back Better Act interconnected? Technically, they are not, at least from a procedural point of view. I think the the politics, particularly within the House, is a bit different. So the bipartisan infrastructure bill passed the Senate in August with an overwhelming bipartisan vote and has gone through the House. I think it easily has support in the House to pass and go to President Biden's desk. You know, the issue here is, I think, largely the concern of the progressives and the Democratic caucus in the House. They really want to see this reconciliation bill, the Build Back Better Act, passed. And they have some concerns that if this infrastructure bill were to move forward and go to the president, that perhaps some of the moderates who may have concerns with parts of the reconciliation bill, the Build Up Better Act, that perhaps they would not be as inclined to vote for that larger bill. So it's almost like we have a a game of hostages going on here where the progressives don't want to pass the infrastructure bill until the Build Up Better Act passes the House. And the Moderates in the House Democratic Caucus want that infrastructure bill passed as soon as possible and sent to the president because they say it has a number of things in there that are important to begin, various spending bills, et cetera. We'll be discussing the substantive proposals of the act with Danielle shortly, but could we see further technical changes made to the bill as the legislative process continues? I would be surprised not to see technical changes made to the at least the tax sections of the Build Back Better Act as the process continues. I think the next opportunity we could see those could actually be relatively soon. As I mentioned earlier, the next step for the bill would be to go to the House Rules Committee. The House Rules Committee has the ability to make floor amendments in the House in order. So to the extent that because of some of the negotiations going on between the moderates and the progressives in the House Democratic Caucus, or even some of the Democrats in the Senate as well, I would suspect we would see some changes made in order by the Rules Committee to help garner more support for this reconciliation bill before it finally goes to the House floor. So I think that's the next opportunity we could see some legislative changes. When that's going to happen at this point, we just don't know. Um, As I said, the bill is in the Budget Committee, and it's unclear when that will move along to the Rules Committee. And that time, you may be somewhat reliant on how those negotiations are going between the various uh, factions of the Democratic Party. In the TCJA, we saw competing House and Senate proposals, and ultimately, due to the thinner margins in the Senate, the Senate version won out. Do we see a similar process playing out here? Do you think the Senate is generally on board with the ways and means tax product is drafted. I've actually heard this term pre-conferencing a lot. What does that mean and are we seeing it? 
Well, I'd say there are definitely folks who are not on board with the House Ways and Means bill, and there are folks who are on board. It just you know, really depends on your perspective and where you're coming from, uh, from within the Democratic Party. There are definitely conversations going on between the Senate and the House, and the ultimate goal here is, I would say, this is partially due to some of the concerns, I'd say particularly of some of the moderate Democrats in the House, they do not want to vote for a tax bill that has a lot of tax increases in the House, which could be a hard vote for them, and then have that bill go to the Senate, have the Senate Democrats yank out some of those hard taxes and then send it back. So in other words, some of the House Democrats, they don't want to have to end up voting in favor of some hard tax increases that end up not becoming law. So that's really where a lot of this tension is coming from. Uh, there's not a lot of public activity going on in the Senate right now. I think all the activity there is, uh, you know, in private conversations of of where their various members of their caucus uh, would be right now and what they can get agreement on. You know, in an ideal world, I think what Nancy Pelosi would love to have is a bill that comes to the House floor that there are 50 Democrats in the Senate who have said, yes, I support it and will vote for it as is when it comes to the Senate. I doubt she makes that goal, but I think that's where they want to get. And they are trying their best at this point to have those, as you say, pre-conference conversations between Democrats in the House and Senate to see how close to that goal they could maybe get. Thanks, Jennifer. Let's turn to Danielle. Could you share any high-level thoughts about what you've read? Well, I would just say I was impressed at how really comprehensive the Ways and Means draft was. Although we know their timeline got sped up due to the sense of urgency around the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the need to maintain parallel tracks, this is a remarkable comprehensive bill on the international front. In particular, I guess I was surprised to see that the Ways and Means staff invested time and in some cases revenue to fix certain aspects of the TCJA that were not particularly implicated by the new policies that they were implementing. And I'll just call out one example. I could cite many. The Section 250 deduction, which is the mechanism by which we get the reduced rate for FIDI and guilty income. Under the TCJA, that deduction was limited by taxable income so that companies in a loss position effectively paid the full rate on their fitting and guilty income. That never made any sense to me, and I assume was only included to raise revenue. The House Ways and Means proposal would actually spend revenue to eliminate the taxable income limit on the Section 250 deduction. As I said, that's just one example where they were focused on policy fixes to the TCJA that don't necessarily raise revenue, and in that case, cost revenue. But I I was impressed to see that they just overall took on making technical fixes to the TCJA that, you know, just made sense from a policy matter. So my, my overall impression is that it was a very comprehensive and technical, technically thoughtful package. So let's start with the global intangible low tax income regime, also known as GILTI. How would we see the rules for calculating guilty inclusions change under the bill? And were there any surprises there? Well, the biggest change, I guess, to start is just they've effectively increased the tax rate on guilty. Under current law, the Section 250 deduction percentage is 50%. They have reduced that deduction to now only be 37.5%, which in the context of a 26.5% corporate rate, 
would mean a 16.525% effective rate for guilty. In terms of whether that was a surprise, we certainly expected the Section 250 deduction to be reduced. And so for the ETR on guilty to go up, Biden proposed 21%, but also expected there to be some convergence with the OECD's work on Pillar 2, where we're expecting the rate for those CFC rules to likely land at 15%. So the fact that the Ways and Means came out at 16.5%, I guess I'd probably say that's not too surprising. And I also wouldn't be surprised if we saw more convergence with the OECD 15% rate as this works its way through the legislative process. In particular, if it turns out they don't need as much revenue as they're currently targeting, maybe because the spending side of the bill gets reduced. The other big change, obviously, on the guilty inclusion is that the inclusion is being computed on a country-by-country basis. So we'll also talk about how the foreign tax credit rules work on a country-by-country basis, but it's important to note that the guilty inclusion itself is determined separately for each country. So that means you're going to be determining tested income for each country or QBI for each country and aggregating those amounts across CFCs to determine separate guilty inclusions for each country. Another big change was the tax-free return on tangible assets, commonly referred to as QBI, survived, but the rate of return was reduced under current lots 10%. The House Ways and Means draft would reduce it to 5%. It was kind of surprising that it was retained, honestly. Democrats had been taking aim at that preferential treatment of foreign assets since the TCJA was enacted. Maybe the retention of QBI can be credited to a recognition that the OECD's work on Pillar 2 also includes, you know, deemed exemptions for a return on tangible assets and a recognition that the U.S. rules shouldn't be totally out of step with those OECD rules. Although reducing QBI return, you know, the U.S. rules are, I think, are stingier than the OECD's rules. Another change that's important, and I think this change is especially important in the context of going to a country-by-country guilty calculation, is that the proposal would allow a CFC that has a loss in a particular country to carry that loss forward so that that loss could be taken into account in the calculation of guilty in future years. And I think that's effectively an unlimited loss carry forward under the current proposal. This was really essential because if you think about it, if a country, you know, had a loss in Germany in one year, Germany very reasonably rationally allows that loss to carry forward and offset future income. But the way current guilty works, there is no loss carry forward. A loss in a year is just lost. And the next year, you know, if there was income in that subsequent year that got offset by that loss in Germany, the taxpayer because there'd be no recognition that that loss exists, would have owed residual foreign tax under current guilty. So if you're going to a country-by-country system where there's no blending, I think it was really pretty essential for them to allow loss carry forwards, and I'm, I'm pleased to see that they did. There are some other detailed changes, like there is currently an exception from guilty tested income for foreign oil and gas extraction income, affectionately referred to as FOGI, um, and they would eliminate that exception from tested income, and that raises a fair bit of revenue. So there are some other detailed changes like that, but I think those are the highlights. 
Thanks, Danielle. I, I do want to correct one small point. The guilty rate is actually 16.5625, which makes absolutely no difference to anyone, but just to correct it. So in my experience, Danielle, when clients talk about pain and incremental guilty tax, they're generally talking about their inability to take into account foreign tax credits in offsetting their guilty liability. But before we talk about guilty FTCs in particular, can you tell us what changes the foreign tax credit rules would generally apply? Well, first, under current law, taxpayers can carry their foreign tax credits back one year and forward 10. Except, of course, with respect to the guilty basket, where there are no carrybacks or carry forwards. This proposal would conform the carry back, carry forward period so that for all baskets, there would be no carry back and a five year carry forward. That change would be effective for taxes that accrue after 2021. It's worth noting, you know, while it's welcome relief in the context of the guilty basket, that this modification to the carryover period would be the most restrictive since the inception of a carryover period in 1957. Um, and I'm, I assume it's revenue that's requiring this modification, but there are certainly taxpayers that are in a situation of overall domestic losses or overall foreign losses for which a five-year carry forward will be too restrictive and they will potentially suffer double tax as a result of this constraint on the carry forward of foreign tax credits. Another really significant change is that the House bill would go country by country for all baskets, not just for guilty. This is achieved by requiring taxpayers to assign income in each basket to separate taxable units, and that's a new term, separate taxable units that are assigned to countries based on where the taxable unit is a tax resident or has a taxable presence. Country by country is thus achieved by aggregating all the income that is assigned to all the taxable units in a country on a basket by basket basis. Finally, the third change that I would call out is the elimination of the branch basket. But I think when you dig into this a bit more, it's a little misleading because I, I'm not sure that there's all that much significance to having, you know, quote, eliminated the branch basket because all the income that formerly was in the branch basket is now assigned to the separate country by country general baskets. And, and maybe more importantly, the foreign source royalties, just as an example, that are earned directly in the U.S., that is income that does not appear on the books and records of a branch with a foreign tax residence or other foreign tax presence is effectively assigned to the U.S. general basket. There is a residual general basket that is reserved for income that's not on the books and records of a foreign resident or other foreign taxable presence. So this income you know, that used to be in the general basket and was isolated away from the branch basket higher taxed income continues to be effectively sequestered from the income that previously was assigned to the branch basket. As a result, I think the only new cross-crediting opportunity that would be introduced by the so-called elimination of the branch basket is that general basket subpart F income and the associated taxes 
could be aggregated with income earned through branches of the U.S. taxpayer in the same country. So that is new and different as compared to our current rules that have the branch basket sequestered from general basket subpart F income. There are a number of other detailed changes, like the proposals to address dual capacity taxpayers that have been around for a long time, proposal to address sale of disregarded entities, and other detailed application of the foreign tax credit rules, but maybe those are better saved for a future podcast. Indeed. And what changes have been specifically proposed to the FTC rules for guilty? There's a lot here. Um, first, and a very welcome change, in the, with respect to taxes that relate to tested income, so your guilty taxes, there is currently a haircut on the amount of deemed paid credits that are available. That haircut is currently at 20%, and this proposal would reduce that haircut to 5%. So I should say this is a very welcome change. It's also a welcome change that we don't see that haircut extended to other baskets. So it's still only with respect to guilty taxes, and now it is only 5%. So I think this is a welcome relief. And and again, this is the kind of change, I don't think that type of change is necessarily mandated by going country by country, but I think this is a place where the House Ways and Means proposal really attempts to maybe write some of the, the TCJA policy. Another sort of welcome change is that the proposal would explicitly provide that there's no expense allocation to guilty basket other than the Section 250 deduction, which that obviously allocating the Section 250 deduction to the guilty basket makes sense. But maybe before we pop the champagne on this provision, um, I think it's important to note that the proposal in a separate section of the bill would deny any U.S. interest deductions that are deemed to be attributed to CFC income, including income that is actually subject to residual U.S. tax under guilty and subpart F. So I think this expense allocation provision, it really the giveaway here only pertains to stewardship expenses since R&D and other deductions generally are already not allocable to guilty. And although interest is currently allocable to guilty, they're just denying those deductions. So it's hard to call that a favorable change. Another favorable change, though, is to allow taxes attributable to attested loss to be included in the pool of taxes that are considered for purposes of determining the amount of taxes attributable to tested income that are deemed paid by the U.S. shareholder. But again, what at first sounds very favorable, uh, some caution is warranted. And that is because as you dig into the mechanics of how guilty taxes are deemed paid at the U.S. shareholder, I think we find that this provision to allow taxes attributable to tested losses is a lot less favorable than it at first appears. That's because the proposal really doesn't do anything with the current mechanic under Section 960 of relying on a percentage, it's referred to as the inclusion percentage, to determine the amount of foreign tax credits that are deemed paid in the U.S. with respect to guilty income. That mechanic, that inclusion percentage, does continue to cause the amount of taxes that are going to be deemed paid with respect to guilty to be haircut whenever there is a loss with respect to that country. 
including by virtue of the new loss carry forwards. In fact, if you don't have an inclusion for a country because you have an overall tested loss for that country, we have these very favorable rules that say the tested loss will carry forward. But in the event that there were any taxes paid in that loss year, those taxes are going to be lost because they're not deemed paid by the U.S. shareholder. There's no mechanic to cause those taxes to be deemed paid. And in the subsequent year when that carry forward is used, it will cause the percentage of foreign taxes that are available to be deemed paid at the U.S. shareholder level to be haircut. And that's just an application of that inclusion percentage mechanic that already exists under TCJA. So I think it's very important for taxpayers to understand that while the proposal does allow guilty FTC carry forwards, that is only relevant for foreign tax credits that are actually deemed paid by the U.S. shareholder. Taxes that are not deemed paid because they are haircut under this inclusion percentage, which again is the only mechanism there to get the taxes to be deemed paid at the U.S. shareholder, don't carry forward. And they're in fact sort of trapped forever at the CFC level. Danielle, the bill also includes proposed changes to the subpart F income rules, which may have been surprising to many people. Could you walk us through those changes and their significance? So the proposal in a taxpayer favorable change would narrow the current definitions of foreign-based company sales income and foreign-based company services income, which, as our listeners probably know, require that there be a related party transaction. This would narrow those rules so that in determining whether that related party transaction exists, we would only take into account transactions with the U.S., And I think this has the effect of converting the foreign-based company sales income rules and the foreign-based company services income rules to really only be focused on situations where there arguably is U.S.-based erosion. So the the rules would no longer apply to situations of foreign-to-foreign-based erosion. And I think this is you know, really maybe the last chapter in a long story of those rules, which have been around now for well over 50 years, being narrowed first through the check the box rules, and then also the substantial assistance rules for purposes of foreign-based company services income to not apply in the situation of foreign to foreign base erosion. But now taxpayers don't have to rely on, for example, the check the box rules in order to achieve that result. And I I think that is potentially a simplification of our system and may allow taxpayers, you know, disregarded entities cause, can cause a lot of stress in the world of all the anti-hybrid rules in the rest of the world. So I think it really is an improvement on the system to just go in and more directly fix the foreign-based company sales income and foreign-based company services income rules to only focus on U.S.-based erosion and and leave guilty to the task of addressing, you know, whatever residual concerns there are from foreign to foreign-based erosion that allows companies to achieve low rates in a foreign jurisdiction. I know, Danielle, you've spent a particularly significant amount of time going through the proposed changes to the base erosion and anti-abuse tax or BEAT rules. What would the BEAT look like under the bill? 
Well, this is another place where they made, in addition to some real policy changes that I'll highlight, they also made other, you know, just sort of more comprehensive changes to try to make the rules make a little bit more sense. That's a, a lofty goal in the context of B, which has always been a bit of a head scratcher in terms of the policy. But I'll just start at the top and in an unfavorable change, they would eliminate the 3% base erosion percentage. That change doesn't kick in until after 2023. So taxable years that begin in 2024, but they eliminate that base erosion percentage test with the result that now the only threshold test for whether a taxpayer has to do a B calculation would be the gross receipts test, which remains unchanged. However, I think as we'll see as we talk about the other changes in the context of B, taxpayers may be, you know, many taxpayers may be less dependent on that base erosion percentage threshold for staying out of B due to some of the other more favorable changes that they've made. Okay, so on the not so favorable front, they would increase the beat rate. And in the first instance, the you know, the current beat rate, other than for entities that are in the financial services industry, the current beat rate is 10%. The proposal would accelerate a scheduled rate increase to 12.5% so that it would now apply in tax years beginning in 2024. And then the proposal would further increase the beat rate to 15% for tax years beginning in 2026. On the more favorable front, um, and, and this is very favorable, I think these are some very significant changes, the proposal would exclude from BEAT payments that are subject to U.S. tax. And the JCT report is very clear that inclusion in guilty is good enough, and they're very specific that the Section 250 deduction doesn't change that result. And the JCT report at least talks about inclusion in the guilty computation being being um, good enough to qualify for this exclusion. It's not as clear from the legislative text, but you know, per the JCT report, even if it's offset by QBI, you would have the benefit of this exclusion. And I think this has the effect of really turning beat off for U.S. parented companies that have all of their income included as either guilty or subpart F, at least in the computations. With respect to foreign parented companies, there is also relief provided for income that is subject to a sufficient level of foreign income tax. The rate for determining what is sufficient foreign income tax turns on whatever the beat rate is for that particular taxable year. So that will also be stepping up under the schedule that we laid out. Another favorable change, they would also ensure that taxpayers don't lose the benefit of their credits, whether it's low-income housing credits or foreign tax credits, don't lose the benefit of any credits as a result of the beat. So full value to all general business credits and foreign tax credits in determining beat liability. And another unfavorable change, the proposal would uh, treat certain payments that are currently excluded under the cost of goods sold exception 
as giving rise to base erosion tax benefits that have to be added back in computing BEAT. And in particular, the proposal would address amounts that a U.S. taxpayer pays to a foreign related person that the U.S. taxpayer capitalizes into cost of goods sold. So like the royalty payments that taxpayers currently capitalize under Section 263 Cap A. In addition, if a taxpayer acquires inventory from a related party, the taxpayer would only get the benefit of the related party's direct cost that it can trace to unrelated party payments. So maybe wages to employees or purchases of raw materials from unrelated parties, as well as indirect costs that the taxpayer can trace to unrelated party payments. There is a safe harbor there for indirect costs that's intended to recognize, I think, that there could be some complexity in trying to trace through all of the costs that a related party has capitalized into inventory to determine what is related party payments and what is unrelated party payments. There's a 20% safe harbor that is available to taxpayers on an elective basis to make that math potentially a little bit easier. And last but not least, and I, I don't know whether to describe this as favorable or unfavorable, but they change the treatment of net operating losses under the B, which this goes into that umbrella of changes that they made just kind of to make the rules make more sense. Effectively, what they're doing here is requiring taxpayers to determine separately a beat NOL. So when a taxpayer has an NOL for regular tax purposes, they're going to be determining, well, do I have an NOL for beat purposes, which will turn on whether they continue to be in a lost position after adding back all the relevant base erosion tax benefits for that year. If there is still an NOL for beat purposes, then that NOL will get consumed based on modified taxable income in subsequent years. So effectively taxpayers, kind of similar to when we had separate AMT schedules for attributes, will need to maintain a separate schedule for their BEAT NOLs and the absorption of their BEAT NOLs against modified taxable income. This will be welcome relief for some taxpayers in that, you know, under current law, you just took your regular tax liability, NOL deduction, whatever it was, and you had to further haircut that for the base erosion percentage that was applicable in the year that NOL arose. And that was the only deduction you got for NOL in computing your modified taxable income. Now, potentially, a taxpayer can claim an NOL up to the amount of their modified taxable income if they have enough beat NOLs you know, that are carrying forward into that year to do it. So it's no, you're, you now are doing a separate BEAT NOL deduction calculation that is a more dynamic calculation taking into account the BEAT taxable income. Danielle, in our episode on the Green Book, we talked about an interest limitation proposal that would apply to disproportionate interest expense in the U.S. Is there anything similar in the House bill? Yes, Gary, there is. In the House bill, they propose a new Section 163N, which would limit the amount of net interest deduction, so the extent to which your interest deductions exceed your interest income. And one thing that's interesting to note about this proposal is that it applies equally to both inbound and outbound companies that have average net interest expense of greater than $12 million. In the Green Book, we saw different proposals that would address inbound 
through a financial statement metric kind of similar to what we have here and an outbound proposal that leveraged our existing interest allocation rules that use you know tax balance sheets and in allocating interest to foreign assets. So this proposal that we have here is very different from an outbound perspective from what was in the green book. It is actually similar to a 2017 House proposal that was ultimately not adopted as part of the TCJA. So as I noted, this new limitation on interest would be based on data from financial statements. It would generally be determined in the first instance by determining if the group's U.S. entities or U.S. trades or businesses are over leveraged relative to the foreign members of a financial reporting group by reference to whether the books and records that are used for financial reporting purposes show that the U.S. is over leveraged based on how their share of the group's net interest expense compares with their share of the group's EBITDA. So this is an EBITDA-based metric to determine, you know, what percentage is the U.S. group's EBITDA relative to the foreign members of the group, and then using that to create a scaling ratio that would actually apply to the tax, the amount of interest deductions that are taken for tax purposes. There are several interesting things to note here. First, to me, it is kind of surprising that Ways and Means would use financial statement metrics to disallow interest expense for U.S. parented groups. In fact, the proposal doesn't do much to coordinate this aspect of the rule with our current asset-based methods of allocating interest, which are statutory and remain on the books. Other important things to emphasize from a U.S. parented group perspective is that a U.S. member's EBITDA would not include the EBITDA of its CFCs. Even if U.S. residual tax is paid on the income of those CFCs under guilty or subpart F. However, here it is important to remember that the proposal does apply to net interest expense. And I think it's premised on the idea that the U.S. group would be expected to push debt down to CFCs in order to recover those interest deductions in determining tested income or guilty. And you can question, you know, well, can I push debt down from a foreign tax perspective? Maybe, certainly not always. Some countries want a business purpose for pushing debt down, but you don't have an interest deduction in those foreign jurisdictions today under the current structure and pushing that debt down presumably would be accepted from a U.S. perspective and would recover those interest expense for purposes of computing the foreign income that's included on the U.S. return. This proposed limitation on interest would apply in addition to the general disallowance of interest expense under Section 163J. There are no changes proposed there, and as we know, 163J is scheduled to convert to an EBIT limitation as opposed to the current EBITDA limitation for taxable years beginning next year, making it a much stricter limitation. Because both proposals would apply, a taxpayer would be denied the greater of the amount of interest deductions that would be disallowed under either proposal. Whatever is disallowed would carry forward for five years. In general, uh, a CFC has a U.S. taxable year that is the same as its majority U.S. shareholder, 
However, under current law, a CFC can elect a year in that ends one month before its required year, so-called one-month deferral. There's a provision in the House bill that would eliminate one-month deferral. Danielle, are there any issues that taxpayers should be aware if this proposal becomes law? This is another biggie. And I think taxpayers need to take particular note of this proposal because of certain transition issues that are going to arise. So a transition rule provides that CFCs with a one-month deferral election in place would have for their first year that begins after November 30, 2021, a one-month short year as the mechanism to conform to the majority U.S. shareholder year. So in the case of a calendar year taxpayer, This would mean that any in-scope CFCs would have a short year from December 1, 2021 to December 31, 2021, and then would just have a regular calendar year. The big watch out here is that one month taxable year could result in lost FTCs for CFCs that currently have a November 30 year end for U.S. purposes, but a December 31 year end for local tax purposes. Under our current rules, which are not changed, these CFCs would accrue all their foreign income tax purposes for the for for that whole foreign taxable year that ends on December 31 on December 31, which would be the last day of this one month short year. Having 12 months of foreign taxes accrue in a one month short period could cause those taxes to exceed the CFC's tested income for that short period. And in which case, you know, those taxes would be associated with a tested loss. And under current law, those taxes would be permanently stranded. Alternatively, a calendar year U.S. shareholder could have a guilty inclusion based on 13 months of tested income because they'd have the tested income for the year ended November 30, 2021, as well as that short one month period along with two years worth of tax accruals, since they would have accrued a full year's worth of foreign taxes on December 31, 2020, as well as on December 31, 2021, with the result that Section 960 would produce an artificially high effective rate of tax on those guilty inclusions in excess of the taxpayer's 904 limitation, potentially leading to lost guilty FTCs. So there's not a lot of time left in the year to plan, in the event that this proposal does end up being included in the final package, but I think taxpayers should be considering their options. There are many episodes worth of material to discuss in the House proposal, and if this bill ever becomes law, we'll certainly have these episodes. But we don't have time here to give more than a cursory overview of some of the other proposed changes. I'll talk very briefly about three very important changes. The elimination of the 245 Cap A dividends received deduction, or DRD, for U.S. shareholders of 1050 companies. The reinstatement of downward attribution from foreign persons under Section 958B4, and changes to the categories of income subject to FIDI, or the Foreign Derived Intangible Income Deduction. Importantly, two of these changes, the reinstatement of 958B4, and the changes to FIDI are proposed to be retroactive to the enactment of the TCJA, so deserve immediate attention. So first, let's talk about Section 245 Cap A, which provides 
in general, 100% DRD with respect to a foreign portion of dividends from 10% owned foreign corporations to U.S. shareholders. On a prospective basis, a corporate 10% U.S. shareholder would no longer receive a 245 cap A DRD for dividends from a non-CFC, also known as a 1050 company. This is a significant departure from current law, but brings the law much closer to Treasury's platonic ideal of a system in which only the residual income after the application of subpart F and guilty are afforded a 245 cap A DRD. A related provision, section 1059G, would provide that dividend from a CFC attributable to ENP earned by a foreign corporation while not a CFC will be treated as a per se extraordinary dividend, resulting in basis reduction or even gain recognition to the extent the dividend exceeds stock basis. This provision is properly viewed as a backstop to the proposed limitation of the 245 cap A DRD to dividends solely from CFCs. Next, let's turn to the reinstatement of 958B4, or as I like to call it, repeal of repeal. Many of our listeners will recall that pre-TCGA, 958B4 prevented downward attribution from a foreign person for purposes of determining CFC and U.S. shareholder status, which meant that foreign corporations that were brother-sister to U.S. corporation did not become CFCs solely by reason of constructive ownership from the foreign parent. As a result of 958 before repeal in the TCJA, the world became awash in CFCs, or some call them faux CFCs. The reinstatement of 958 before retroactive to its repeal would generally undo this and restore order to the universe. 958B4 repeal was the proverbial sledgehammer intended to kill a fly. The fly in this analogy was a specific type of post-inversion dilutive transactions used to out from under CFCs of an acquired U.S. target. Having reinstated 958B4, the House bill would create the fly swatter. In short, under new section 951 cap B, Foreign parented U.S. subsidiaries will continue to be subject to guilty in subpart F with respect to any direct or indirect ownership in any faux CFCs in the group. In contrast, an unrelated U.S. shareholder, for instance, a U.S. shareholder of the foreign parent, will no longer be subject to the CFC inclusion rules with respect to foreign subsidiaries of the parent. This will be welcome relief to many such unrelated U.S. shareholders, but whether it's good or bad can depend on many factors. For instance, a corporate U.S. shareholder of a faux CFC might prefer the reduced rates from the guilty inclusions with the intended increase to its stock basis. Rather than being taxed at the full corporate rate on a dividend, including a Section 1248 dividend, on a future repatriation of the cash or sale of the stock, Remember, the 245 cap A DRD will no longer be afforded this U.S. shareholder. It should be noted that this bill would provide an election for such U.S. shareholders not subject to the CFC inclusion rules, including by reason of 951 cap B to treat 1050 companies as CFCs and thus be subject to subpart F and guilty. 
However, this election needs to be made by each U.S. shareholder as well as the foreign corporation itself. And it is durable, only revocable by consent of the secretary. For this reason, it may be difficult in practice for a U.S. shareholder that wishes to make this election to get its foreign co-investor to cooperate in such an election. Finally, a word on FIDI. FIDI is generally calculated by reference to deduction eligible income or DEI, and DEI is all income except for some specific categories of income. The House proposal would exclude from DEI another category of income, income of a kind which would be foreign personal holding company income, FPHCI under the subpart F rules. Income from sales of stock, interest income, and most importantly, royalties are all kinds of FPHCI, and thus potentially could be excluded from the FIDI computation. Indeed, since the release of the House bill, practitioners have expressed some concern that related party royalties, a significant source of FIDI for many companies, might be denied the benefit of FIDI under this proposal. Indeed, retroactively, since this provision is proposed to apply to years starting after the enactment of the TCJA. However, while we were recording this episode, the House has released its report on the Build Back Better Act. And in that report is included a footnote that indicates that this rule is, quote, intended to exclude passive income, not active income, end quote, and includes a cross-reference to the active rents and royalties exception under the 904 regs. The 904 active rents and royalties exception applies to any royalty derived in the active conduct of a trader business, regardless of whether such royalty is received from a related or an unrelated person. So it seems clear that in general, the House intends to leave undisturbed the FIDI eligibility of related party royalties. It remains to be seen whether Treasury and the IRS ultimately implement this intention through regulations, and indeed whether they extend this non-exclusion from FIDI to income from the sales of IP that would give rise to active royalties under 904, including deemed sales under Section 367D. Jennifer, any final thoughts on what we can expect in the coming weeks? You know, I think I would just make the point that you know, this week could be really important for the Biden agenda, including his tax agenda. Um, I would not be surprised, perhaps, to see some announcement or other activities relatively soon that could impact the future of the Build Back Better Act. And, you know, that is part of the negotiations going on, you know, inside the House Democratic Party and possibly even with the Senate Democrats with regard to a possible vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. You know, the two bills are at least politically tied together, at least at this point. Jennifer and Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we wrap up this episode, I want to remind folks that the legislative developments here in D.C. are not the only show in town. The work at the OECD, known as BEPS 2.0, seems to be progressing on a similarly accelerated timeline. We will certainly talk more about this topic and others on future episodes of the podcast, so please stay tuned. Until our next episode, take care. 